VegCast Radio, WFAS. VegCast. Yes, we're going back to Woodstock for VegCast 112. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, as always, and even more than always, we have got a full menu of vegetarian and vegan podcastry coming at you in VegCast 112. We are going back to Woodstock, Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary, WFAS, uh, for a special feature interview with Jenny Brown, who has a new book out called The Lucky Ones, which is about her journey and her starting the sanctuary and related issues. So we will be talking about that with Jenny at Woodstock, and we will also have for our musical selection a Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary-related novelty tune, I guess you could call it, a song called Kaylee the Cow, and we're going to speak briefly with the creator of that song, Ed Barocas. Uh, We went out for a special interview with him just to get uh, the story behind that song and how it relates to Woodstock uh, for people who are not already familiar with the whole Kaylee saga. You will be now. Uh, We also will have an interesting science fact. They're always interesting, but this one also relates to animals and treating animals as persons, uh, as sentient beings. We'll get into that. We'll get into a lot of other stuff, but please, for now, I want you to just sit back, relax, and crank up that MP3 player as we deliver to you this 112. Bench. sounds of Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary. We went up there uh, last month and talked with one of the uh, founders of the sanctuary and the leading light behind it, you could say, Jenny Brown and longtime VegCast listeners will remember uh, back in 2006 when we went to Woodstock for its opening weekend and uh, we went back and did not get a chance to stay as long as we would have liked. We had to go on an errand uh, and head back home, but we did have time to sit and talk with Jenny in the the house that they have refurbished there uh, to live in, and we talked about this book, The Lucky Ones. So let's have a listen to that now. We are right now in the lovely home of Jenny Brown herself, and we are here. This is at on the grounds of Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary. Uh, and Jenny, I, we've had you uh, very briefly on VegCast six years ago, but I wanted to welcome you as a featured guest to VegCast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And we are going to talk about your book, The Lucky Ones, uh, which has just come out. And you're, you're in the middle of a whirlwind media blitz. And VegCast is happy to just be one small part of that. Um, and the lucky ones, as you were saying before we turn this on, it's it's your personal story, but it's also you use that story to get in the information about you know animals. And let's just start with my passionate fight for farmed animals. Most people wouldn't necessarily say my passionate fight because that, that might sound a little self-conscious, but for you having seen you speak... 
Uh, it's just you're always so so passionate and ready to take any uh, any moment, any anecdote, and just find the passion in it. And you're, I think, concerned with getting that across and kind of getting through, you know, some of people's uh, defenses. Is that what what the passion is about? Or is it just something that you 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 talk for a few sentences and it just starts comes rolling out? That's kind of how it is. Yeah. You know, I I often don't even prepare for talks because I find I just do better if I talk and I talk about the Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary, or currently I'm talking about the book, you know, for me, um, the my personal story is what the publishers were interested in uh, because, in a nutshell, I came from Louisville, Kentucky, in a Southern Baptist conservative household. I lost my leg to cancer when I was 10 years old. Finally, and the first time in my life, I was able to play the cancer card and beg my mother to adopt an animal. And um, that animal was a, a cat named Boogie who lived with me for 18 more years as I lived in Chicago and then in Boston, back to Louisville for a while. Um, not in that order, but she was with me for a very long time. But in my early uh, child mind, that relationship with her um, led me to believe that perhaps my church and all it taught had gotten it wrong, that surely animals have souls. And um, having cancer uh, at such a young age was, of course, tragic as it would be for any child. And um, I endured over two years of chemotherapy. I suffered, you know, I mean, psychologically suffered uh, physically su suffered, and even going back to school suffered from um, ridicule and bullying and making fun of, peg leg, long john silver, you name it, um, and so was especially sensitive to suffering. And it was because of my relationship to Boogie that I really, uh, I realized how much I loved animals. And, you know, at the time, when it was so difficult to talk to other people and relate to other people, and I always felt people looked at me a certain way, Boogie was a steadfast friend, and I carried that with me for a long time. But it wasn't until I started University of Louisville that I picked up some literature. I think it was from PETA. This was uh, 1989, and read about the treatment of animals in laboratory experiments, animals that are used for the circus and other forms of entertainment, uh, animals used for fur, and finally animals used in animal agriculture. I became vegetarian within a few weeks, and that's when I was 18 years old. But after that, I ended up moving to Chicago to pursue a film career. I went to film school, and it was there that I met a woman who was in town doing a fur protest, uh, I was waiting tables at the famous Chicago diner, you know, meat-free since 83. Right. And okay. it was meeting this woman um, that led me to do some, you know, some activist things, protest, uh, and even dressing up in a rabbit costume that looked like it had undergone Dre's eye testing in right. a laboratory where they pour chemicals in a rabbit's eyes. So this was a horrible-looking bunny. Yeah. And well, I, um, Even that anecdote, I mean, it's like for an ordinary 
person to have that anecdote in in their life, that would be enough. But it's like you just have to push it one degree further. So you're you're trying to get up to this thing in the elevator, and then onto the elevator comes Tony Bennett. Now, did that really happen, Tony Bennett? That actually happened because we had taken the staff elevator up. Yeah. We were in the basement waiting for the optimal time because there was a big advertising award ceremony, and Gillette, who at the time was notorious for animal testing, right. um, they were winning all sorts of awards for pioneering uh, visual effects, and um, at the, at the time, uh, we knew when everybody would be outside of the big um, awards room and would be having cocktails just outside the elevator. Right. And so when we, ha- we knew we had one floor to stop on, and we were terrified that that light would come on. Yeah. But sure enough, it was Tony Bennett and a bodyguard. I had a giant sign hanging around my neck that said Gillette tortures animals or shame on Gillette or yeah. something like that. He said, oh, I didn't know anything about that. And about that time, the elevator door opened. You know, we ran halfway down the hall right into the middle of the, the, the you know, the cocktail party uh, shouting. And I had my crazy looking rabbit costume on and handing out literature and chanting. And, you know, again, I was younger. This was kind of a radical thing to do, but it was sort of a test of my will. And then I was sent undercover after that because they knew that I had camera skills and they knew that I was a ballsy gal. Um, And if you can apply that to gals. But um, that led to me doing a number of undercover assignments and that was in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. But, um, and my claim to fame was getting inside of a Primarin facility in North Dakota, which is a new form of factory farming where they're keeping pregnant horses uh, tied up in stalls the entire period of their gestation. And they use the urine for a drug millions of women take in this country that's an estrogen replacement. It's something typically used during menopause. Um, then my career started to take off, and I needed to make a living for myself. So... Um, I stayed active in animal advocacy and did what I could, remaining vegetarian throughout. Uh, but it wasn't until almost a decade later that I learned about the group Farm Sanctuary and had always read about the different animal issues, you know, our relationship to animals, uh, philosophy and theory regarding our connection with animals, Mm -hmm. but it was in 2002 that I visited Farm Sanctuary, had sort of been fantasizing about buying a house, getting some land, and perhaps just adopting some rescued farm animals. But after visiting Farm Sanctuary and the power and the uniqueness of visiting an animal sanctuary, a farm animal sanctuary, where people come face-to-face with animals they only know as food, and it was... That experience and that weekend that really made me realize that I was falling out of love with working in film and television. I had gotten to where I wanted to be. You know, I worked on prestigious shows such as Nova and Frontline, met my husband working for the filmmaker Errol Morris, um, and was booked already to, a month or two later, uh, produce and direct a show for Discovery Channel, an hour-long documentary. But... My heart wasn't in it. I had told the founders of Farm Sanctuary that I had done some undercover video work and said I'd be willing to do it again. And in fact, I wanted to do it again. 
Two weeks later, they sent me, flew me out to Texas to document downed animals at stockyards, which are the animals that are uh, too weak, non-ambulatory, to actually walk onto the slaughterhouse trucks. So the way they get them onto the slaughterhouse trucks is barbaric, with chains, bulldozers, you name it, with no regard for animal welfare. Just what I saw during that week, uh, including, you know, uh, dozens of the unwanted male calves from a local dairy operation being unloaded into a pen where they were going to most likely be purchased by a veal farmer. And um, there were a number of sites, cancer of the eye, different cancers, downed animals, uh, tiny babies that had been separated from their mothers that were crying and crying. What I saw during that one week is what really changed my life. And I realized that I wanted to dedicate my life to being a voice for farm animals mm -hmm. because farm animals, hands down, as you know, are the most exploited and abused beings on this planet, outnumbering by far those animals that are used in experiments, those animals that are coming, you know, that are um, being euthanized at shelters across the country, uh, hunting animals that are hunted all across the board. Farm animals make up somewhere between 95 to 98% of those animals. The right. greatest need lies in terms of animal advocacy is in farm animal, I don't like to even say welfare. Of course, welfare is very important, and these incremental changes in trying to get states to ban battery cages and veal crates and gestation crates. Uh, but ultimately, my goal is not just against factory farming. It's the desire to move away from animal agriculture right. and stop farming living beings. Well, that's. I wanted to ask you specifically about that because in in the book you do you make it clear that you know all farmed animals are abused animals because the whole industry of farming animals is a form of abuse, but also sometimes you you fall back on the factory farm this factory farm that, and you know I wonder if like you've gotten to the point where in giving tours and things you you have a keen kind of awareness of where people at and and whether you're going to meet them on the factory farm level which just about you know Americans just basically say oh yeah factory farms we got to do something about that and then they'll just go and eat their factory farmed burger. But they know that factory farming, there's something wrong about that. And every time they and sit down at a restaurant or eat fast right, food, sure. those aren't animals coming from so-called humane operations. Right. I mean, but even farms. if they were, you know, that, the point, are, are there other people that you feel like you can get right to the, the point with and that you, uh, do you modulate or moderate your, your message when you're talking to them when you're taking people on tours or do you, do you basically have kind of a uniform approach that uh, you're going to just hit them with the raw facts right in the face or how, how do you go about that? Well, we get thousands of people through our doors during the summertime and I do do many of the educational tours that we do around here. Of course, I gauge the audience, especially if there's children yeah. in, you know, included in the tour, but it's you know, after years of doing this, I just seek to use the most effective 
language that doesn't alienate. Mm -hmm. But of course, people are horrified by seeing, you know, we have actual battery cages from which, you know, 99% of eggs in this country come from hens that live in these battery cages. We have a farrowing crate, what, you know, what the mothers live in when they are moved from the gestation crates, which is egregious confinement, into something that's uh, just as egregious when they have their babies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, this is intensive confinement where we're denying these animals everything that makes life worth living, right. including just their natural instincts to be able to spread their wings or root in the dirt with their snouts, you name it, uh, the ability to move in general. Yeah. So, you know, I try to talk about these things and sort of the sadness of it. I don't want to alienate anyone. It's all about informing people and letting them make their own choices. But to say that it's a personal choice um, doesn't include that there was an animal that was involved in that, right. that had no say and no, no choice in the matter and no voice. And um, it's enslavement of other species. Right. And, and it's done in a way that's like a horror show science fiction film where we never even see these animals. So the unique opportunity of sanctuaries is bridging that gap, putting animals face to face with animals they've only eaten. Mm -hmm. um, but here, they're no longer abstractions. And they're not treated here, even if you have visited farms, they're not treated here as commodities. Everyone, down to every chicken, has a name and are treated with love and respect and for the individuals that they are. And we have optimal health care for all of them, plenty of space to roam, and we give them the best lives imaginable. We feel like we owe it to them. They are the lucky ones, right. but they are also ambassadors to our cause. And so while people are meeting Dylan, the you know 2,000 pound steer out there that we've had since he was five days old, rescued from uh, a veal farmer, you know people are able to meet this individual, hear about what goes on with veal, and then make that important connection to the dairy industry. Right. So it's all about informing and and recognizing that these are things that aren't discussed in our society. They are not taught at schools. You know, we're, we're led to believe that cows just magically produce milk. They're mammals like us. So there's never the connection that they have to have a calf Right. And that we take the calf away and we drink the milk that rightfully belongs to that calf. Right. I like to point out things like we're the only species that drinks milk into adulthood and we're the only species that drinks the milk of another species. Yeah. It's a cow's breast milk. I know. It's it's funny. To, it's sometimes hard to put our, myself, anyway, back in that that kind of bubble that, that we grew up in. Uh, where this completely illogical fantasy concept of how you know our food is produced uh, is just promulgated, and the, the concept of milk and cows giving milk and all that—they um, don't it's give anything. Hard, right? It's hard to to get to sometimes talk to people who are at that point because I'm so impatient for them to be you know where where I'm at. Now I'm I'm you especially. 
having lived with and had to, you know, see all these animals dying, having to save animals, having to like literally save their lives. Um, I'm wondering, is it hard for you to, when you're meeting people and engaging them, or is it hard for you to say, now I have to pretend <laughs> that I'm back in this world, I'm like just getting off the bus from this place where, you know, they they have been insulated from so many very basic facts that, that are now so obvious to you and me and that we just think of as so logical and clear that how can anybody not see this? But we were, you know, we were there too. So how, is it hard for you to like put yourself in a, in a place where you can kind of gently get those things across to them? Get that message across. Well, I like to start out by saying, you know, that I ate meat for a very long time and I too was completely disconnected. Um, but it's a matter of informing yourself, caring enough. If you say that you're against cruelty to animals, and so many people say, oh, I love animals, yeah. and then they go on to talk about their cats and their dogs. Yeah. It's amazing how we create this divide uh, between the animals we know and love as companion animals and those animals that are used for human consumption. So I start there, and I talk about the disconnect in society without pointing fingers or proselytizing. And I think that's um, incredibly important to relate to them on that level and then to, you know, talk about the individual animal stories as we go in with the chickens and the ducks and the cows and the sheep and the pigs and the goats. And while they're meeting them, feeding them treats, learning their names, that's when you get some synapses to start firing. and. Right. Seeing them as individuals is very important. And again, that is the very unique opportunity of sanctuaries. We are on the front lines of talking to people one-on-one -on -one while they're in the company of these animals that they have never had interactions with. Right. That's, that's where the magic happens. And, you know, I'm happy to say that many people leave here vowing to leave meat off their plate, vowing to look more into it. We give people resources and vegetarian starter guides, and um, but we do everything we can. Because, you know, when I first became aware of all these issues, I was uh, uh, soapbox preaching, radical, meat stinks on my T-shirt, fur is dead, you name it. My yeah. car slathered with bumper stickers. It's not effective. Mm -hmm. And people might even say, because of my directness and my passion, uh, that perhaps that's not the most effective um, way to go about it. That's why I temper everything, you know, when I'm not in the vegan bubble around all of our like-minded friends. Right. I, my primary goal is to just plant some seeds of compassion and to inform people and talk about how crazy it is that these animals totally outnumber us the impact that animal agriculture has on the environment, the impact that eating animal products has to our health. You know, we're bankrupting our healthcare system. Obesity, you know, leads to so many problems, so many diseases, heart disease, diabetes, various cancers, and how all that can be reversed by switching to a plant-based diet. And then also doing my best to talk about... Um, how it sort of opened up a culinary world to me 
and that we're foodies. We're not people that it's just, oh, eating is something that we have to do to sustain ourselves. Right. You know, my husband and I and many friends, you know, we constantly talk about food. We're always excited about new vegan products that are out there, sharing recipes, making food also, uh, and using food as advocacy. Many of our events, we have incredible food for people to try because, again, we feel that is advocacy. Food can be advocacy in right. that way. I agree 111%. And we should mention also that uh, the Lucky Ones also does include recipes. You don't just, you know, talk about your life and then give people the message. You also give them things that they can kind of a take-home thing. They can go and try this in your own home. <laughs> veganism exactly. And so. there's so many resources out there. Yeah. So, you know, this is my chosen path of advocacy. And not only do I get to talk to people face-to-face, -face, which I feel is a skill I have, you know, and I'm comfortable talking to people, mm -hmm. but I get to be around the animals, too. Right. I'm constantly reminded why this fight, why this message, why this um, striving to evolve to a more compassionate species, you know, just by being around these animals who make my life very rich. These are my furred and feathered children. We call them children or friends. Sure. They're part of my family, and they remind me every day why being a voice not only for them, but for the millions of other animals just like them that are living at that very moment in factory farms, and then also how free-range and cage-free and this clever advertising campaigns, how um, what's happening in terms of um, trying to make people feel better about their food choices. Yeah. And I dispel a lot of those myths, and I make sure that they know what common animal <laughs> agriculture, even what the small farms do in terms of uh, castration, branding, um, that happens without anesthesia or painkillers, how when the chickens that are um, free-range and actually are free-range in, in terms of they have grass and they're not crowded into giant industrial warehouses, that they come from the hatcheries where all the male chicks right. of those egg-laying breeds, how they are ground up alive or tossed into a trash bag and suffocated. Right. So there's a lot of misery and um, people are largely unaware. And I want to empower people with information in making food choices that coincide with their values. Right. And I think that that's important, putting it on them to make the decision, because you cannot tell and you will not be successful at telling other people what to do. Right. I would love for the world to go vegan overnight. I would love to end animal enslavement, you know. I wish we could com would quit comparing ourselves to the lions and the tigers and are you going to try to save those <laughs> animals? You know, these right. are silly arguments and things people come up with, the protein myth. I do everything I can to address those various issues and, again, just to create as much change as one person or, in this case, ten of us here that are on staff, what we're capable of doing, you know. But the movement is growing. More people are becoming aware of how we treat the animals we eat. And, again, the many health benefits of a plant-based diet. 
and trying to break it down also that it's really difficult to be an environmentalist and say you're an environmentalist and yet continue to consume animals. Right. Well, you're doing a great job of getting all of those out there, and you I didn't even have to ask many questions because you kept on getting all of the, the facts in there, so I hope that you're, you're performing at that elite gold medal level. Thank you. Uh, when you're out talking to... Uh, the, the mainstream media and so forth, and I appreciate your taking the time. We're out of time now for this interview, but I appreciate your taking the time out to be on VegCast. Thank you so much for having me. Any opportunity to get the message out there, and thank you, Vance, for what you do. Okay. Well, thank you for what you and everybody here does. Mutual admiration. <laughs>
That was Kaylee the Cow, and we have the mastermind behind the song, Ed Barocas, here with us right now. We're in Morrisville on a uh, kind of a cloudy afternoon, but we wanted to get the, uh, the concept behind the song, so we're just going to take a minute out to talk to Ed himself. Ed, welcome to VegCast. Very nice to meet you. Thank you. And uh, so what... What exactly spurred the writing of this song? I mean, can you just give us the story behind this? Right. The, well, the story of the of Kaylee the cow spurred the song, and it also, to to some extent, changed my life over this last year, because uh, much to the surprise of everyone who ever knew me, uh, the story of the of Kaylee the cow ultimately uh, uh, caused me to become vegan. Now, how did that happen? Well, I'm a civil civil rights lawyer. I'm a lawyer for the American Civil Liberties Union. Of New Jersey, and I was representing a, uh, a an animal activist uh, on free speech matters, totally unrelated to this cow. Um, but the evening that we were in court, uh, the person I was represented was very nervous and worried because uh, there was a cow that had broken free from a slaughterhouse in Philadelphia and was simply roaming around the streets of Philly, uh, and then ultimately got caught again. It was a little white cow. And it caught people, people's attention and, frankly, their hearts. Uh, so the animal activists tried to save the cow. Now, who was this animal activist, if I might be so bold? Sure. Mary Ann Bessie was the person that I was representing. Okay. Um, and she was trying to, to save this cow. And so um, I got interested in the story. And the night that we went to court, it was not clear whether the cow would be killed by the next morning. Mm-hmm. So uh, I told her I need to find out what happened with the cow. You know, I, I, I got interested in it. So about a month later, I finally find out. And what happened was, while they were trying to save the cow, and it looked like they would, then came up a Pennsylvania law which would not allow the slaughterhouse to release the cow. Uh, basically, it had to be killed in, in, in order to be released. Uh, so the animal rights activists worked and lobbied and tried to get connections, ultimately did to the governor of Pennsylvania, who gave this cow a pardon. So, uh, happy story all around. The uh, little white cow, Kaylee, K-A-Y-L-I, ended up going up to the Woodstock Animal Farm Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Fast forward about a month later. It's summertime. It's August. I like taking trips up to the mountains, whether the Poconos, the Catskills. So, I decided to go up to Woodstock. 
And I figured while I'm up there, why don't I head to the Woodstock Animal Farm Sanctuary where Kaylee the cow is now living. Uh, I saw Kaylee. I met this uh, sheep that uh, was afraid of me and uh, very cute. A three-legged goat that kept on trying to come up wanting to be pet. And even a turkey that wouldn't leave my side, like a like a little dog following behind me where I went. Right. And uh, you know, my my sense of well, either call it guilt or in the positive sense call it empathy uh, for these animals was triggered. And uh, while I was there, I learned how milk gets made, um, how chickens are treated um, in making eggs. And um, I said, you know what? Let me see if I could do this. I'm someone who hates vegetables, who was very much a meat eater, but uh, that sense of empathy is really what hit. And by do this, you you were saying, let me see if I could be vegan. Let me see if I could be a vegan, because yeah. you know what? I, I had dabbled in being a vegetarian maybe 10 years earlier, right. but I never really felt it. Uh, I felt it. Mm-hmm. When I went up to the Woodstock Animal Farm Sanctuary, I felt it. And for the last year, to everyone's surprise, who thought I'd may give it a day or a week at the most... Uh, I've been vegan. I found out that it is not very hard. So add to that the fact that I work, uh, while I'm a civil rights lawyer, I also do comedy music. And I've been working with the um, uh, members of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, um, musicians from there, uh, to uh, create comedy songs, uh, you know, professional comedy songs. Eddie B. And the G-Spots is our group. Right. We have a number of songs up on iTunes. Uh, it's mostly uh, some political song parodies. But here I said, you know what? This is the type of thing that would make a fun song. Yeah. And so we did a song together. Um, Eddie B. and the G-Spots did a song uh, to, a, to a Dixieland jazz song, uh, Kaylee the Cow. Right. And uh, I found someone to do animation. And it's that wonderful, wonderful feeling when something turns out exactly how you want it to turn out. Yeah. And, and that's what the song and video did. And I, I think there's a sense that a lot of people have that animal rights activists are, are very dour and humorless. And uh, so it was nice to give a little bit of humor and lightheartedness right. uh, to this whole issue. Great. And we'll have uh, the link to the video in the show notes so people can go and see that. Um, and uh, for... Download. I mean, people can buy the song on Amazon, and uh, well, they, they can that they can buy it on. If they uh, do buy it, then then what? Well, they can buy it on uh, on downloaded from iTunes. iTunes too. It's Kaylee the Cow, K A Y L I, uh, the Cow. Or you can see all of our songs. It's Eddie B and the G Spots. E D D I E, the letter B, and the G Spots, um, is the name of our group. And uh, I hope you enjoy the songs. Great. And uh, I just wanted to mention that a portion of the the proceeds from the sale. The song you were donated to Woodstock, is that right? That's correct. 10% goes to the Woodstock Animal Farm Sanctuary, and 10% I'm also donating uh, to 22 Reasons, which is a Philly-based animal uh, education uh, group. Great. Well, Ed Barocas, thanks for talking with us, and uh, I appreciate uh, everything that you're doing with your your whole career in the going vegan thing, and I hope it uh, it keeps up, and I hope you have a lot of success. Well, thank you very much, and it, it will keep up. It's clearly, it's been a year now almost exactly a year um, and it's now become a part of it. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Science.
Our science fact for VegCast 112 is crows have human-like powers of inference, study says. This is a write-up from the L.A. Times of a study that uh, I had heard about over a week ago, but I had to wait for the embargo on this to be lifted so that it could be published in uh, mainstream press so I'd have something to read and share with you. And so that's my excuse for why VegCast 112 did not come out sooner than it did, because I thought this study uh, was very appropriate for what's kind of the theme of this VegCast. And perhaps you'll see why as I read uh, from this article, which goes, A smart species of bird called the New Caledonian Crow can make inferences about the behavior of hidden animals in its environment, an ability previously observed only in humans. According to a new study published Monday by an international team of researchers in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, the researchers, it continues, first allowed the crows to use a tool in their enclosure to fish some food out of a box. Parenthetically, it notes that tool making and tool use are abilities the crows are already famous for. The researchers then moved the box so it was near a corner of the enclosure that also had what's called a hide, basically a sheet with a slit in it that the researchers could hide behind while poking a stick out of the slit, a sort of ramshackle Wizard of Oz setup. The box was positioned so that the researchers' stick would come near the box, this is the box that the crows were using to fish food out of, when it was poked out, scaring the bird and discouraging it from feeding. The researchers then exposed the crows to two conditions. In the first one, two humans walked into the crows' enclosure. One stood in the open, while the other hid behind the sheet and poked a stick through near the box. Then both researchers left the enclosure. In the second condition, only one human entered the enclosure, standing in the open away from the hide. Nonetheless, the stick poked through the slit and began to move. It was rigged to be movable from outside the enclosure. Then the single human left the enclosure. After both conditions, the researchers recorded standardized measures of how cautious the crows were being in their feeding. The key difference between the two conditions is that in the second condition, no human was observed leaving the hide after the stick was poked through. If the birds had no ability to infer that there was a person hiding behind the sheet and moving the stick, their behavior would show that they would simply get progressively more comfortable with the hide and the stick, becoming less cautious over time, regardless of whether humans exited the hide before feeding. But if the birds could infer something about the human's behavior while they were hidden, they should become highly cautious of feeding after the second condition because they did not observe a human's departure after the stick moved, so the stick might move again at any time, striking the birds during feeding. That increased caution is exactly what the researchers found. The birds were more likely to break off feeding to inspect the hide after the second condition. And if you go to uh, the story here, it will link to the, uh, the actual study that has a video. And you can see how often the crows, while feeding, would stop and look back uh, because the, the stick was coming from behind where their head would be uh, when they were poking through this uh, into this uh, box. Uh, and they would keep on uh, looking back up. You can, it's very striking. 
Uh, to continue reading the article, the researchers say that this provides strong evidence that the New Caledonian crows possess the ability to infer the presence of, quote, hidden causal agents, unquote, living beings responsible for the movement of an inanimate object while hidden like a stick or shaking tree leaves. It's another ability knocked off the humans-only list. And now that they've found it in crows, the researchers say it may well be found in other animals, too, allowing scientists to begin to trace the evolution of this piece of complex cognition. And I just wanted to add from a different write-up in the New Zealand Herald, uh, they have a quote from the researcher Alex H. Taylor, uh, who says, we didn't really think the crows would be able to do this. We thought it would be a nice experiment to show the limitations of a corvid crow brain. A lot of people have studied this kind of thinking in humans and made strong claims that no other animal could do it. And that article concludes that the experiment was part of a larger project to better understand the unique intelligence of humans and how intelligence evolved. And uh, I think that the uh, conclusions that we might draw from this have already been pretty much spelled out. Uh, it's another thing, another higher level order of intelligence and reasoning that we simply assumed was unique to humans and have found is not unique to humans uh, and, in fact, may well be present in many animals other than humans. And yet, even while reporting on this very fact, we call human intelligence unique, which I'm here to say, yes, I endorse that view. I think human intelligence is unique. I think it's hard to argue that we do not have a form of intelligence which is unique among the animal kingdom. However, I would also posit that all animals' intelligence is unique. All animals have their own unique forms of intelligence, and the sooner that we stop talking about uniqueness uh, as synonymous with greater and more important and more morally significant, uh, the sooner we'll be able to understand animals, appreciate animals, and perhaps live in uh, peace and harmony with them. I know, I know it's a great, bizarre, fantastical concept, but it's just the kind of concept that arises when we draw our own logical inferences from the science fact. The science fact, along with the rest of VegCast, is sponsored by Tofurky, making delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soy since 1980. Okay, I told you it was a full menu, and it has been, and we're just about done with VegCast 112, but before we go... I wanted to mention three events that are coming up that I'm going to be talking about in this week's V for Veg column. This is a special sneak preview of V for Veg that will be coming out on Thursday. Uh, but these are three upcoming events somewhere around Philadelphia that have to do with veganism. And uh, I wanted to let you know I'll put all of these links in the show notes so that you can find information about these as soon as the podcast comes out. And then when V for Veg comes out on Thursday, I'll also put a link to that. The first one is the Peace Fest. It's on Saturday, September 22nd in Phoenixville. 
then there is a an event, a pop-up event in Germantown in Philadelphia uh, at an established restaurant for a new business that's uh, just ramping up now. Uh, vegan catering, soul food catering, and hopefully a food truck uh, that they're trying to get going there. Uh, that'll also be a fundraiser for Phil Abundance. And then also on Tuesday, out a little further afield, uh, off the Atlantic City Expressway in May's Landing at Karem Restaurant, there will be a harvest dinner uh, that's being put on by the American Vegan Society. Uh, it's a pretty big thing if you're a vegan, if you're newly vegan, or if you've been a vegan for a while. Uh, I have to point out, you know, this is, uh, you have the opportunity to dine with Freya Dinshaw, uh, one of the co-founders of the American Vegan Society, a living light in American veganism. Uh, but you should uh, let them know as soon as possible about that. The RSVP deadline is coming up on that, and our deadline is coming up, and so we are going to get out of here. Yes, VegCast is closing up shop. Until next time, I want to say a special thanks to Jenny Brown and Doug Abel for all they do at Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary. Thanks especially to Jenny for talking with us on VegCast. About the lucky ones, thanks to Ed Orocus for letting us play Kaylee the Cow and talking with us about the history behind that. And, of course, thanks to Marianne Bessie for all that she does in and around Philadelphia for animals. And lastly, thank you, the VegCast listener. Uh, remember to subscribe to VegCast and until next time, remember to get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast